Hello. Hello. Industry. 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 Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Industry Tactics, a podcast that talks with many outsider and weirdo musicians from all over the world. Hope you're enjoying the ride so far. Today, episode 124, my chat with Gino Robert. We caught up. He's at his studio in California. And um, what an inspiring chat. Um, Not only do we talk about the music industry, we also talk about the beauty business and uh, his interesting path. He's one of these guys that's constantly seeking um, inspiration and new ideas and always hungry for knowledge. Gino has worked with the likes of Tom Waits, Anthony Braxton, John Zorn, Nina Hagen, the list goes on. Um, the Clubfoot Orchestra. We actually get into his uh, his work on the uh, the Twisted Tales of Felix the Cat. He's gone all over the place. We get into his opera, I Norton. This is a beautiful conversation. Hope you really enjoy it. Gino Robert, episode number 124. questions like are you comfortable and Gino's responding with are you comfortable and uh well what do you think I answered to that welcome to industry tactics none other than Gino Robert so thankful for you to make time for us today thank you for having me over delighted (laughs) yeah you've been on my list forever to, to to speak with to unpack your um your fascinating career in music you know um I'm just interested in kind of how you 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 came to music, how you gravitated as a young person towards music and fell in love with uh it was just beautiful. So we'll try to unpack as much of that as we can within the hour, but how did you how did you get towards music in, when you were when you were young? Um I think it was because well I my father um uh, was sort of an amateur musician when he was young. And then later I learned in my twenties, I didn't learn until my twenties that my grandfather who was a homesteader in uh, Saskatchewan uh, was, I guess a professional musician in a certain sense because he played all the Hungarian weddings. So every weekend they were playing, he played fiddle and him and his cousins had a band. And so in a sense it was in the family because every time there was a, and we had a huge family of mother's got eight kids in in her group so awesome there's always lots of people at holidays and lots of music fiddle accordion and so i kind of grew up with that and i was i gravitated towards percussion because i was always i'd always pull out the pots and pans and yeah yeah with spoons yeah and um so i took i just wanted to play drums since i was about four or five my folks got me lessons when i was seven i got a little tiny drum set and but then i gave it up for sports because i didn't have any you know, I didn't have anybody to play with and didn't have any references except to play with the the old people in the in the 
holidays. Where uh, where did you grow up, Gino? What what's Southern California in Riverside? Okay. Um, which is in the Inland Empire. You've seen the movie Inland Empire. Right on, um, right on. And um, let's see. Somehow, I think it was in, uh, I was uh, in middle school. I had a cousin over who yeah. was from Niagara Falls. And we were listening to the Beatles. We bought a Beatles record. Uh. And I realized, oh my God, I can play the drums like that. I can do that on drums. And <laughs> decided oh. that drums are sitting in the corner. I just kind of dropped them for, hang on one second. Sure, Hold that. Sure. Take your time. Take your time. Thank you. Um, so, okay, there we are. Uh, so, um, yeah, I started taking lessons again, joined the, the band in school, and then realized very quickly that's all I wanted to do with the rest of my life was play music, be it a drummer, you know. Um, but I also, you know, uh, I took piano lessons and started, I, I, I wasn't very good at focusing on what they gave me. So I ended up just rewriting things and improvising. So I spent nice. a lot of time, you know, doing that, find, finding myself, you know, composing. And it, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of where it all started. Who are some of your, was there one teacher that made you feel like you had something special to give this? This world, this musical world. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Maybe. Maybe. No, I think it was more that um, I was not very good at getting um, hints from people to stop playing. <laughs> great. You know? Great. I think great. it's more like that. That's nice that, to hear as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't move in circles with with you know, musicians who uh, mm -hmm. flattered anybody mm -hmm. or gave you any positive feedback at all other than, oh, yeah, that's great. Um, you know, in high school, I was always playing rock bands, playing in, a you know, uh, a Doors and um, a cover band with Doors, all this kind of like 60s hippie music, but really wanting to play in a band like Rush or XTC. Oh, the best. Yes. Yeah. Right? The, right? I mean, that's that was the, the you know, that and um, there was three drum influences which uh, mm -hmm. i can really just point to at that that early stage one was um ringo star of course yeah uh number two would be um elton john's drummer um mm -hmm. whose name just just left my mind um oh cannot believe it just left my mind at the time and then um neil pert of course there so you go. there you go number and three yeah neil pert and so you know and then at the same time you know, I like weird. I just I liked things like the dishwasher sound and the washing uh -huh. machine. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I don't know how this happened. My father acquired a, a TIAC four track reel to reel, so I started, okay. awesome. you know, recording. Awesome. And they had this book uh, called Electronic Music um, by I think it was Elliot Schwartz was the okay. writer. Okay. And I stole that from the high school library because I just didn't want to give it back. And I had you know talked Great. about tape music and talked about Stockhouse and talked about. Yeah. Great. You know, feedback and great man so great. you know by my senior year i i did a um i wrote a piece because we all had to do a little piece in the yeah. music department and thomas scandura who's the drummer from the molecules was in it because he you know i went to school together fun and yeah. it was like tape uh concrete that he and i put together plus awesome. percussion so you know it was i was on the way how did um, your how did your father come across that recording machine like did I don't he just know. stumble I think he, upon it or no i think it was more like you know 
I was an only child and, mm-hmm. you know, he saw that I liked music and he appreciated that. Awesome. Um, awesome. So he thought, you, I, you know, it's a toy. He was a big, yeah. he was a big fan of country and Western music. And he okay. figured I'm sure that eventually I would settle into something like that, which made money, not realizing yeah. that it would be contemporary avant-garde, whatever, or yeah. noise, things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was, I think it was just, you know, Oh, maybe would you like a tape recorder? I, I have access to one. I you know get one cool. somewhere. Great. Inexpensively. So, um, you know, when I asked you that question earlier about who, um, who of your many teachers may have encouraged you to turn into who you are today. Some of it sounds like it goes back to your, to your parents. Um, your father in this case with that, that recording machine is definitely a supportive uh, figure in your life. It sounds like. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, he never really listened to what I was doing. It was more like, you know, we lived in a sort of bungalow flat house and I, I had, my stuff on the side where the garage was and they lived on the other side. So it was more like when the band came and we lived sort of rurally. So when the band came over, we could play all night and nobody would hear us. Cool. 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 And everyone left their gear there. So it was sort of, um, I, yeah. And he also, um, when we had a band, he, um, bought us, uh, a rudimentary PA system, which meant it was like a, a PV 500 watt power amp and two. That's a big deal. Big speakers. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. we pile it into the van and go and play gigs at the, at the bars and stuff. Uh, even though I was in high school, I could, you know, get away with it because we had uh, two of the members were drinking age. You know what I love uh-huh. is um, episode two of this podcast, and we're well into our 120s now with with the number of people I've interviewed. But episode two is Dave Clark, and he wrote this beautiful tune for the Woodshed Orchestra called Getty Lee. And in that in that song, it says Rush are the kind of guys that would encourage you to start up a band, you know, and. This whole notion of inspiration and where it comes from, and just hearing that, like I know you're, you probably have a soft spot. It sounds like in your heart for Rush and and that that early music that got you into it. And I know you've bloomed into something much different than that, right? But that that is at the I think at the core of like what inspired you to get into it. And I find that so damn charming that like a kid from Niagara Falls, a kid from Brampton, Ontario, a kid from, you know, Riverside, Southern California, you can all be moved by this thing, this thing called, you know, music and the spectacle of it all, you know, it's fascinating to me. Oh yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, the, it's, it's funny cause I, uh, I'm in academia at the moment and this whole mm-hmm. notion that people just get together and, and improvise and play music and write songs and yeah. songs are written not by somebody with a pencil and a, sitting at a piano, yeah. but just like jamming with their friends until something sounds cool. And you go, yeah, let's do that four times and then, you know, move it up a third or whatever. Yeah. That's <clears throat> baffling to a lot of people. Or it's also baffling to people that <clears throat> rock, so many rock musicians don't read music at right. all. Right. right. You know, and you're just, right. just reading about the Muscle Shoals group and how they're using the numbering system, their oh, own yeah, numbering amazing. system, not even the Nashville numbering system, but, you know, similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. So they could, you know, figure out songs real easily. Do you, um, is your background, like y- you said earlier that something like it, it that the more traditional path, you started improvising on it. So does, do, do maybe I misunderstood you, but did you, you know, that f- I know the formal way to grow up as a musician, to become a musician, you know, that, that tradi- more traditional path. Did you, did you veer off that path or do you have, those initial chops um and do you kind of borrow from them periodically in your work 
Um, well, I, yeah, I think I, um, I do have that. I have a, a, a conservatory style background. My Great. in junior high school, <clears throat> somebody recommended a piano teacher and he was the organist at the first Baptist church in Riverside. Okay. And so the piano lessons very quickly, he said, we're going to, we're going to learn music theory. And I'm like, okay. And you know, it was like a little tiny book and it was very concise and we just went through it and I thought, wow, you know, the scales and how the scales related, you know, yeah. Yeah. on a dominant. So it, I, I really got that and I really dug that. So okay, cool. when it's time to sort of play the, the pieces, you know, he would have me analyze them. Say, okay, mm -hmm. so look here, it's going into this and this, you know, these chords in the left hand are, you know, one now, then it's two minor, blah, blah, blah. So I realized that, oh, I can improvise over that. And he never taught me improvising and never said, okay, you know, in a jazz sense, play yeah. this scale yeah. over these chords. But yeah. it was more like just sort of by ear, just finding my way around and learning that way mm -hmm. to the point where it was distracting. I mean, mm -hmm. but the good news was, is that because he was the, the choir director, as well as the organist of the church is that. He said, oh, you play drums. I was taking drum lessons and I was in junior high school band. I said, oh, you know, okay. do you want to play timpani in the services? So, oh, wow. For, I don't know, maybe five or six years, I was the drummer oh, for their, great. for everything, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, Christmas shows, yeah, Easter, the gospel choir, et cetera. Amazing. And then he also had a connection with this uh, university it was nearby called the University of Redlands, okay. where... Uh, my probably my biggest mentor in contemporary music or as a composer was Barney Childs was okay. the instructor there. So he, you know, okay. he, he and another person suggested that that would be a place I should go to get, you know, to, to college. Now my, my mother didn't graduate from high school. My father graduated from high school. Yeah. Most of my family on either side were not, did not get beyond high school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was just going to go to the city, the local city college where I played in the jazz band and played in the orchestra as a, you know, Tenth, the 10th percussionist, et cetera. Yeah. But he said, oh, no, this, you go to university and they got a really good program. Oh, so great. when I went there and I said, they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to play, I want to play percussion, but I also want to be a composer. And they said, well, you need to have a certain level of piano technique to be a composer. You have to be at the level of a first year piano student, which is like, you know, yeah, yeah. pretty high. So yeah. um, they said, well, you know, you can, you can take that exam later and maybe you can, you know, achieve it. So ultimately I did. I, was able to good, get to that good. point where they accepted wow. me, but I was already taking composition lessons and Barney could see that I was, wow. um, you know, very serious about it and very interested. Wow. And they had an electronic music studio. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was friends with Jim Tenney and oh, wow. Hal, Hal Budd. He was friends with all these sort of, you know, East coast composers. Jim Fox cool. was a student of his Jim Fox who runs cold boo recordings. Wow. So it was all these wow. really amazing musicians that, you know, were sort of in that area not all real, you know, um, on the atonal and extreme spectrum, but also in other forms of contemporary music that were quite uh, aesthetically challenging for me. I mean, this sort of yeah, yeah, prettier stuff. But yeah, yeah, very exciting time. And who? who Plus, what was the name of the university that you went to? Sorry, if I University of that. Redlands. Redlands. And did you? Yeah. Who blew your mind when you were? Because I love that that era of like someone's musical journey when they're just like oh sure things open up around that time for anyone who's hungry and cur curious right so yeah was it you mentioned stockhausen uh, well i was i was already i already had uh in, in. stockhausen records in high school i had amazing, um, I, amazing i was uh in the residence fan club you could send a, a your name and they'd put it on their <laughs> wall and you they, yeah, they, they, they sent me the the santa yeah the uh, santa dog, santa dog. Yeah, seven yeah. inch ones for christmas 
Amazing. Um, what else was I listening to? They, they couldn't have been far from you, I guess. Eh? Well, they were in San Francisco, so that was about a, you know 500 miles. Okay. okay. And ultimately, I got to know them because we got when I joined Clubfoot Orchestra, it was on Ralph Records, and oh, amazing. So, amazing. and I'd already they'd already come to see some of our shows in another group I was in, so I sort of got to know them and through that ultimate, which was really exciting. Um, oh, that must have been. That must have been. Wow. But at Redlands, it was um, just a series of little weird little things happening. I mean, uh-huh. also in high school, I was way into uh, Frank Zappa's music because of the percussion stuff and right. um, uh, Gentle Giant because of their percussion. So, you know, I was, I was looking at all these different things, but then playing, you know, right. Christian right. music. Yeah. What a playing giant. Playing bars. So I, I was, you know, and then, oh, then playing in marching band and, and orchestra wow. and blah, blah, blah. Wow. So I had a really good, wow. solid background sounds, sounds and playing so with rich. some killer yeah. i studied with the the, the timpanist um of the la philharmonic for about a year and a half um at redlands or yeah or uh, it was during high school actually holy shit i met him at a camp i went to a percussion camp and he was there oh, um wow. william craft is his name he's a composer okay um, as well um but great. at the time great you know i'd I said, can I study orchestration with you? And he said, well, okay, tell me the ranges of the string instruments. And I was like, uh, he said, let's study percussion first. That's like the story of my life. It's like, what do you want to study? Well, no, 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 you do this. But ultimately it was a but really you get good there. You, you get, get there. there. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I studied with another guy it was another mind blowing thing. Uh, more so than uh, Bob, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Kraft was um, Ron George, who was a contemporary percussionist in the, in uh, not in LA. Uh-huh that is somewhat obscure, unfortunately. And he passed away a few years ago. And he had this interesting thing. You know, um, Terry Bozio has this giant drum set that he sets up around him now. Right. Um, and does these solo performances. Yeah. Well, Ron George was doing that in the late 70s, early 80s. And what he had done is he, hmm. to play these sort of complex multi-percussion pieces, he built a bunch of little pads that had hydraulic, uh, connections to beaters that would hit a gong over here and maybe a, oh. you know, something over here. Oh, so he, wow. you know, he, his entire playing surface was right in front of him. And then the, to cap this, he had the music on a sort of scroll in front of him and he would hit a pedal and the scroll would just go like this and change. It would go from left to right so that, Oh wow. The new, so he never had to like reach up and turn pages. And Incredible. so I remember that was the first instrument that I was really just, so you know, that's like a that's like a uh, uh, a combination of mechanical music. So he's triggering physical. He's, he's, yeah, I mean, literally. Yeah. So the gong, you know. So instead of just having a whole bunch of foot pedals that hit things, right. he would also have pads that he would hit with mallets, and then it would yeah. hit. Some, you know. Yeah. So the sound. So not only is is it more ergonomic for him to play that way. Right. I mean, one could say, well, now you don't have the same kind of touch because you're not really hitting it directly. But, you know, some of these pieces sure. that composers would write would be really, you know, you. it's really hard to get a lot of instruments in a, in a, in a small space. Wow, he sounds like... So an that was his solution. He sounds like an incredible artist, this Ron George. I, yeah, I, I and then the other that. instrument that he had, which was um, quite fabulous, mm-hmm. was he had built... Um, he had put a motor on his vibraphone that went past... The, the, the speed went past audio rate. Which means the 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 rotor spun at I don't know forty or fifty hertz, maybe even faster than that, so that yeah. he could change the speed. And when you do that, the fans uh, start to create their own 
tone so that now you get this sort of like uh, frequency shifting sound or sort of um, okay, ring okay. modulated sound right. that he could play the pedal. He could sort of slow it down, speed up. So he'd play the vibes oh. and all of a sudden you get this like this really beautiful electronic sound out of it, oh, but it's wow. all acoustic. Wow. You know, so, you, you know, uh, when you're 17 and 18, you see something like that, you just kind of go, wow. It changes you, doesn't yeah. it? It changes you. Because that I mean, was before. You know, yeah. that was before MIDI and digital right, recording. Right, so right, right. There it, everything you're, you're hearing it, that. Right? You're hearing that? that you're hearing all that, and that gets into your musical vocabulary when I listen to your music. Yeah, I mean that's it's like it's that's sort of you know yeah. yeah, you realize what what the potential could be. And yeah. so yeah, that you know, that was a major deal for me. How did, how did you get weird? Like, I mean, I mean, you and maybe maybe weird's the wrong word, but like, how did you? I'm always fascinated with how people open up to. I guess you're just walking us through it. Is Ron, people like Ron George open you up to the weirder sounds, the the less explored uh, sea of of obscure sounds that you can craft and use in in your own work. I mean, how did you? How did that come to you? How did you become like? Do you consider yourself a bit of a weirdo or an outsider or any of these kind of words? No, it, I mean I, I, I'm pretty conservative in in a certain sense. In that, Interesting. I'm not. You know, I I I've never smoked marijuana. There you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, yeah. Um, I come from a family of alcoholics, and I had cousins who were uh, into drugs in a heavy okay. sense, and I had a okay. uh, family member who came back from Nam. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, pretty yeah. fucked up and murdered his yeah. second wife. Oh, so gosh. I had no interest in, in any sort of any of that shit. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, you know, I led a pretty clean life. Um, yeah. But this is how uh, you found your voice, I guess. Eh? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, this. you know, and so I, at the same time, I guess one, actually one interesting thing about Frank Zappa was the same way. I mean, he really, right. He didn't do drugs in his musicians. He didn't really, you know, you're forbidden to, you know, I mean, you couldn't really, yeah. you couldn't be at the level of playing that he demanded. Right. Um, if you were high right. or even drunk. So um, I could relate to that. So that's right. one in one sense. I never really liked pretty music. I didn't I never really liked the flute and I didn't really like the vibraphone. So, you yeah. you know, that in those days you went to the grocery store and there was jazz standards played on flute and vibraphone. You know, that kind of recording music stuff. Yeah. I didn't like country and Western. I didn't like songs that that told a story and were sappy and had. Yeah. you know, that kind of false emotional stuff. So I was from very early on, I was looking for something else. And every time I found it, uh-huh. you know, I was hanging on to it. So, you know, to hear, to read in a book that there was, there were these people who were just like pointing a guitar at the amp, um, you know, or um, Bob Ashley's uh, the Wolfman, you know, putting the mic in his mouth at feedback level and then moving the, the glottal part of his throat to right. tune the feedback. When you read something like that, you realize, okay, <laughs> I'm that's not, alone. not one, that's not one four or five chords no and you know yeah. although i played in symphonies and played in operas you know at the the smaller level the local level um you know the, it wasn't necessarily music i really loved i liked right. electric guitars you know i think right. the first record I actually bought with my own money was uh black sabbath's paranoid when it came out and mm-hmm. just played that to death mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because <laughs> because you know, because hard stop. You, know, you try to yeah. explain to somebody now, they say, "Well, it's kind of not really that heavy." And say, "Well, at the time, there right. wasn't anything right. like that." Right. That's the Max thing. Webster. I, I got a Max yeah. Webster record from my cousin, and wow. I, wow. I remember just listening to it forever in high school. Yeah. It was always on the rec- on the yeah. on the turntable. What's um? So so you said your grandfather had roots in Saskatchewan. 
Uh, there's Niagara Falls roots. What's your, what are all these links to Canada? Um, I, I think it was um, Europeans coming over. Uh-huh. So on my, on my mother's side, they're all Hungarian. Okay. They're from Bukovina. So, which at the time I don't think was considered, it would have been Austro-Hungary, I think. Right. I'm not exactly right. sure. Right. Okay. Um, okay. But so, that family came over and my grandfather's it. family uh, were homesteaders. And so when he was old enough to go and, you know, have his own area, yeah. he went down yeah. and knocked down the trees, et cetera. But he had, he ended up leaving two different farms. One, I think, because of a plague of pests, and another one because of a drought, and ended up wow. moving to Niagara Falls to um, wow. you know, to work in industry, wow, um, and raise his his kids. And then my father's parents came from Italy right before he was born. So his brother was born in Italy. Okay, he was born in Niagara Falls. But um, oh, wow. my wow. grandfather on that side, uh, there, my grandparents on that side are from uh, North. Eastern Italy. There so my grandfather go. was coming over to Pennsylvania, working in the coal mines in the twenties okay. and eventually earned enough money to bring everybody over. But I guess, I guess That's he got right. a, that's right. He got a job in Niagara Falls at the, uh, the Queenston quarries. Oh, wow. Where wow. there was a whole bunch of other Italians living in these sort of like, it was a company town, right? So they had this, yeah. each person, yeah. each, each family had their one room, you know, kind of shack. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's yeah. kind of how everybody ended up in, in Canada. But my yeah. father really didn't like, my father wanted to own his own business. So at the age of 25, he'd already spent 10 years as a on the Canadian National Railroad, worked his way up to wow. being a, an engineer, wow. and decided that he wanted to have his own business. So a friend of his convinced him to go to beauty college. <laughs> as we do, a, as we do. And, and become a hairdresser. And then my father realized that he you know, he could own his own salon. So my mother's family, they, my mother and him were dating and my mother's family ended up moving to California. My father uh-huh. and my mother married and then they ended up moving. So he could basically, you know, you start a business and then you work your way up. So he started a, a chain of hair salons, oh, which were called wow. Gino Robert. Amazing. He called Gino Robert. And I was named after the hair salons. Are you, is your father's name Gino as well? They called him Gino. Uh, his his uh, Italian name is Gelindo Guido Luigi Olivo Forling, and that is music. Yeah, it's music. I, mean, I know it's right. That name, and, is, um, that name is music. It's beautiful, man. Wow. And he and his partner uh, Paul Robertson, uh-huh. they had a um, a salon called Little Gino's, and then eventually they renamed it Gino Robert, which was a sort of way of getting Robertson and Gino in there and making it European sounding. And then I was coming out of the oven, so I got that name. And oh, when I was man. when I moved away, my father said, "You know, you should just shorten your name." And I, okay, and I made. I mean, I was already using all three names, and then I just, yeah. Yeah. you know, lopped it off because it That's was easier to remember. This little clip here is the 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 um the making of Gino. This little video clip is going to go on as a promo for the, <laughs> the show. making of Gino. Oh man, that is charming. I was, I, I'm so happy you went there. Cause I was going to ask like, Hey, what did your dad do? Just like, like, he sounds so cool. He brought you home a record, a, a, a TAC recording unit. And all of a sudden it changed your life. And then he's a hair, he's a, he went from railroads to hairdressing. Like that's amazing. What a career path. Also, oh, totally. he went from Niagara Falls to Southern California. What yeah. uh, or from Italy? Was he born in Italy and then he? He's born in. He was born in the. He's born in Niagara. 
Yeah, out there in the near the quarry. He wasn't even born in the That's hospital. cool. He's born and neither in my the quarry. Neither of my parents, they didn't have uh, birth certificates. So when they had to come to the States, Holy shit. I'm, they had to prove yeah. that they were born. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm here. <laughs> Here's a little bit of blood if you want it. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. And now um, it's like, wow. it's just, I mean, you couldn't even, I don't know how you would do that now. That's charming. Um, no, you couldn't, I guess. But, but you know, my father said, beautiful. oh, my father tried to convince me in high school, you know, I don't want you to become a hairdresser. I'm like, Oh, you yeah. can guarantee that I'm not going to become a hairdresser. And then, of course, as he's getting older, he's he, you know, he's like, well, maybe you want to take over the business. I was like, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But I did, you know, I did work with him. I, I, um, after, I got two master's degrees at Mills College, one in computer music and one in uh, in composition. Okay. And I realized I was just, I didn't want to be an instructor. I didn't want to be in academia. So I went yeah. and he and I, we uh, didn't speak for many years. Okay. We had a, he stopped drinking and we got we became close again and he was starting a new business. So I nice. went to beauty nice. college, got my manicuring license with the state of California and worked you with him for a couple of years. Amazing. Yeah. So, Amazing. cause you know, when you're a musician, sometimes, yeah, you know, at that Say point, I, I, I was playing with the Clubfoot orchestra. I was playing with um, splatter trio and potato eaters. Okay. And yeah. I didn't want to play weddings and bar mitzvahs and yeah. Yeah. any of that stuff anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, having this day job was, was great because I was in the marketing. I had to know how to use nail, the nail products. So okay. I had a mark. It was mostly marketing. I could work from home up here in the Bay area. Oh, and okay. um, it afforded me the lifestyle of being able to just go and play crazy ass music. Yeah. Yeah. That without you know, compromise, it, right? Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, well, that is gig- the compromise. That is the yeah, compromise. I mean, some gigs, yeah. some gigs are union and some aren't, you know, you and go, you uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Was you that know, an important, was that, a, would you like looking back on it now, those two, three years, whatever you spent there, um, that where, uh, well with your dad d- doing that business, oh, yeah. like a totally different thing during the day. What was that important? Like, it just feels like it was important, not only as a family moment for you to connect with your father, but also like to help you figure out your career in, in a way like to, well, to not yeah. compromise the music. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I started a record label with some colleagues okay. at University of Redlands called Rasta Scan. Okay. And I've always wanted to, I mean, again, from you know junior high school onwards, I've always wanted to make records. And yeah. I, yeah, when I learned that all these people like Zappa and yeah. Harry Parch and everybody had their own labels, of course, it made sense to have my own label. So when I when I got to the Bay Area in 1986, mm-hmm. I you know. I, I restarted Rasta Scan and started putting stuff out. So, working oh, in the God. nail in the nail business and the beauty business, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of gave me a sense of uh, of what it's like to run a a business that is not the entertainment business. So, for example, my father says to me one day, he says, um, "So let me get this straight. You make a thousand records, yeah, and you yeah, send yeah. them to, you send them to distributors, and they don't pay you yeah, right away." Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. "That's true." And he says, "Let me get this straight." <laughs> In 10 years, they can send those records back damaged and they don't pay you. And I was like, yeah. He says, son, that's not a business. You know? yeah, <laughs> and you realize yeah, that the music yeah. business is not built on selling stuff. It's built on things like publishing and getting, right. your, you know, getting your music synchronized. That's where the real money is. Yeah. yeah. You know, and. Yeah, he's right. He's totally right. And so to really, you know, so my students, I, I teach at a local college here. I teach uh, mm-hmm. recording. I said, if you really want to stay in the business, make other people's dreams come true by being an engineer. 
Yeah, nice one. And that'll nice afford one. you the chance to do the stuff you want to do. Because if you go out there and you just want to be the next big, you know, yeah, name it, rapper name it. or heavy metal guitarist, yeah, you know, prepare to starve. And Braxton always said that too. It's like you know, yeah. he said, yeah. "Mr. Robar, you you know, get ready for poverty, Mr. Robar." <laughs> you know, Amazing. you started your own label. Get I wrote that poverty. line. Get ready for poverty. That's the name of my next record. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, I mean, and it's, so it's it's really true because you yeah. know how many musicians we all know. It's just yeah, man. it's really yeah. a struggle. Yeah, and yeah. well, that's it. That's why this beauty thing is so beautiful to me, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. the good news is I didn't have to do I didn't have to do any nails to make a living, but I, you know, yeah. the technology of it, and also yeah. just yeah. I've always yeah. been interested in business, and it was. It was, and I met some amazing people, and I met some really yep. horrible people. Yeah. So I met some horrible people on the level of horrible people in the business, in the music business, mm -hmm. there as well, who were just mm -hmm. interested in, in screwing other people over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And so you know, it, it it was a really good eye opener. And yeah, working with my dad was a joy. That was awesome. super, and I learned a ton. Um, and I probably should have stopped running a record label early, but I mean, you know, there's hey, well, you you know. That's the dream. Sometimes, right? some, you know, and I've been lucky, um, like Matt, you, you know, you tell me that you interviewed Matt Brubeck, who's who yeah, I yeah. Obviously know and who's a, a colleague from being in the club or club foot or club foot orchestra. He yeah. and I were in the group at the same time that we did the music for the Felix the Cat television show. Amazing. Twisted Amazing. Tales of Felix, Felix the Cat in 1995. And, you know, it's like that was the closest that I think I've been in a sort of situation where the music was both uh commercial commercially viable and getting commercial a really high level of commercial uh play okay because it was for uh you know kids program ostensibly yeah, right. you know it right. was a little bit too dark um and i think you know having a business background really helped okay because at that point i wasn't actually in the band i the story how we got that is a really short story but i'll, I'll give you a, please please it, it, it will make sense so I'm at the wedding of a close friend of mine from high school. And I love, I love how this shit goes, eh? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> so this friend of mine um, was an animator and yeah. was working on The Simpsons and things like that. So, uh -huh. you know, one of his close friends was at this thing who's, who was a director, a film director and an uh, animation director. So we, okay. he was wasted off his ass, this other guy. Okay. He says, I saw your band Clubfoot in L.A. at the New Art Theater, and I love uh -huh. it. Uh -huh. And I'm doing a, a new version of, you know... Uh, Felix the Cat for CBS, and I want you guys to be the musicians. Amazing. And Amazing. A, he was drunk, and I thought, he's never going to remember this. B, I was no longer in the band. <laughs> <laughs> so there's and that. And C, and, you know, because I was kind of estranged from them. I thought, this, you know. Anyways, next morning, I get a phone call and says, I'm really serious. He like, totally oh, remembered. Wow. Wow. And so I went wow. to the band, and I said, look, here's this opportunity yeah. that I can negotiate. Yeah. Um, I will be oh, the yeah. music director. Okay. You guys will just, wow. you know, wow. we'll... It'll be a split or blah, blah, blah. But I'll be the music yeah. director. I'll play some percussion. And yeah. so I negotiated the whole thing, you know, with uh, at that. It was um, uh, Film Roman is the organization, which at that time made all their money on the Garfield cartoon series. OK, got it. Um, and right, we got it. Right, right, right. We got a, a little over a year out of that, you know, of, of constant work. High was quality one work. season or, or more. It was, was going to be the second season and we got started the second season and they pulled the plug for two reasons. <clears throat> One um, is the person who owns the rights to Felix the Cat is a musician. So he, he, or musician, he's amateur musician. He took the, yeah. the two primes, he took the prime spot, which is the opening uh, 
music for the show. That's okay. where it gets the most money. Right. And it sets a theme. Oh. So he was kind of, he. I think he really wanted to have one of his friends or somebody do the music for it. Oh, really? Okay. So we okay. came in at the director's behest. Plus, we were not one person doing it all in MIDI. So we were very expensive because we had yes. 12 people. Yeah. We had yeah. studio yeah. costs. Yeah. So yeah. when they looked at the ledger at the end of the first season, they were like, what the fuck? Um, and then the the director's vision, which is what sold it to CBS, yeah. they didn't like because it was very psychedelic and a little bit too okay. adult in some ways. Okay. And the yeah. music was too weird. I mean, he would love the music, but it Interesting. was... Interesting. The the uh, higher ups just wanted to clear house. So they got a new director, new music, blah blah blah. At the very last minute, you know, we were, Miles and I were were putting in the studio, and it yeah. was like, you know, now wow. I got the studio space and no, it's <laughs> no sounds thing. like I, I got to check it out though. So is this accessible? This Felix the Cat music from yeah, first it's called yeah. The, so the film's called The Twisted Tales of the Felix the Cat, or the film, I mean the, the series. Yeah, and maybe fifty percent of them are on YouTube. Um, okay. Okay. And there would be like three short little mini episodes per half hour. Hey, any chance we can, <clears throat> you can share like an MP3 or something with me that we can cut to, to let our listeners hear it now. It seems absolutely. So yeah, oh, absolutely. Amazing. Here it is the Clubfoot orchestra uh, performing some music from that, from that, uh, from that series. about some money to fill an empty tummy. And I think that was interesting because <clears throat> we needed the to work in the in the film industry is and the television industry is just yeah so hectic yeah. and we're up here we're 500 miles away that was the other thing is that oh, wow. you know wow. they didn't they couldn't come over and just know that we're there you know yeah. with this kind of remote thing I was told later was very problematic for the for the um, the folks the the higher ups in the organization. Isn't it amazing though? You're at a wedding and your life changes. Is this like shortly after you're you're done your studies? Um, well, this is when I this is I was working for the um, working for my father in the in the in the oh 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 in the beauty biz. So, so you're in the beauty biz. So this, I'm going to so just I, say that you haven't left the beauty biz. I'm baby. still in the beauty biz. And I just so that was my <laughs> that was my you know I just said wow I, I can't do both. <laughs> okay so, so things open up for you as yeah. you go into that like things are really opening up for you oh yeah in fact foot. for the band as yeah. well i mean the the yeah. yeah that i mean we we really tried to keep it a big band sound in other words we didn't really use a lot of samples at that time or since okay we okay. probably okay. should have i mean if we did, were to do it now we would because the technology is a lot different sure sure um, but they really wanted the director really wanted this sort of live band thing yeah, yeah having yeah, said yeah, that yeah, it was right. you know there was like surf music there was marching yeah, music all, all this kind of stuff yeah because yeah. every week you would get my job was to get the the animatics and go through and say okay you know 
music, yeah. this kind of music should be here. This should be here. And then to think, okay, so what composer would do best with that? What composer would do best with that? And then certain yeah. composers in the group is like, you know, nine that were composing all the time. They, uh -huh. I kind of knew who could write fast and who could write slow and whose strengths were. So like Matt, you know, I could say, Matt, I got 10 minutes here, broke it up into three different parts. And I mean, almost literally the next day, we just have these amazing, amazing arrangements. So you, you farmed it out. You, I farmed really, it out. And then you really you know, used that band's Oh, absolutely. Cause we couldn't have, yeah. you know, we couldn't have done it. The How? turnaround time was so short. And of course, yeah. you know, as you get yeah. closer and closer to the end of the season, it gets more and more late. Cause there was at that time, they were sending the stuff to Korea to get, you know, yeah, to do the yeah. tweens between things. Right. So it right. was it was chaotic, and we were recording everything up Sounds here. Like then it. I'd fly the DAT tapes to to Burbank. Yeah, we would put yeah. it on the Pro Tools on Burbank and and synchronize it. And I'd come back up and we start the whole thing again. So it was just this. Wow. So for me, yeah. as the music director, I was busy all the time, and it was wow. a really joyous. Sounds occasion. like a great kind of busy. Yeah. yeah. And how how old is the Clubfoot Orchestra at that time for you to be able to? use that muscle and really leverage that kind of collaboration with the group like well, the band, were you guys a few years into it by yeah, the, the i i joined the band in 87 when they started okay. doing uh accompanying silent films all right awesome um awesome. i was at that point uh i played a gig with john zorn uh played uh, with john zorn and rova and uh, wow. willie winett wow. and oh, wow. two of the members of clubfoot were at that gig and they you know uh one of them said we need a percussionist for this film stuff. Can you play timpani? I was like, yeah, I play timpani wow. and mallet. So I got hired for that. Wow. The band had already been going, I don't know, for maybe a decade before that playing, you know, started okay. as sort of a collective at this place called the club foot, which was, you know, sort of a ah, biker no bar idea. and a horror house. And so the original club foot orchestra was people who couldn't play instruments, playing instruments. And then a few people ringers who could play. So like Bruce okay. Ackley, I think, uh, from Rova was in it at that time. Okay. <clears throat> and then Richard Marriott eventually turned it into something that was uh, more big bandy rock. And that's the two records that came out on Ralph Records were, were his Richard Marriott's okay. thing. And then when he got into silent films, that's when I got hired. And they hired a tuba player. And <clears throat> so a few years after that, that's when we did the TV show. Okay. Which led cool. to a lot more commercial work. We did some work for uh, the... Um, what was it called? The not comedy. It was the Comedy Central was the main was the main uh, yeah. owner. Yeah. So it's an MTV MTV brands. We did some stuff okay. for different okay. animated things for them. Great. Uh, Great. Some tours. Then I left the band again, and it continued to you know it's 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 now it's it's I I'm the percussionist again for it. And we're doing um, these huge right? versions of um, Metropolis, which include oh, sick. which include yeah. like giant machines you know like oh um, wow wow one wow. of the members of survival research labs is in the group and he's got this like giant machine okay. it's kind of you know uh sounds like guar it's, yeah it's, <laughs> amazing, it's, amazing yeah it's like that so you can see that movie and you got this kind of chamber yeah. orchestra and then you've got these really oh, crazy wow. things that are really loud so it's wow. now it's a, it's a, quite a big spectacle of course oh man with the pandemic we haven't done a gig in probably well now it's two years but yeah, yeah. The last one we did, we had three of these three people doing these kind of loud things plus the band. So that's kind I, of I where mean, where it is now. <clears throat> you you mentioned. I'm just interested in how you kind of formed your musical family because I know you, it spans far and wide. But you <coughs> mentioned Anthony Braxton. You mentioned John Zorn. How did some of these connections? Is it all at at the weddings? Is that where you're making this? Happen, <laughs> yeah, I just got a lot of weddings. 
I mean, uh, Braxton. Like, well, okay. They need their nails done. What's the deal? How yeah, good question. Connections? Well, yeah. you know, I moved uh, when I was getting out of my undergraduate. I applied, I only applied for one graduate position, and I didn't get it. It was at a okay. university to be in a percussion program. But I wanted to be an improviser because I was already improvising and I wanted to do contemporary composition. So Got it. a colleague of mine who knew the guys in AMM said, why don't you move to London and study with, with Eddie Prevo, who's a drummer in AMM? So I did. Whoa. I sold my drum oh, wow. set in 1985 and moved over there and spent a year there. Wow. 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 And while I was there, um, I met Anthony Braxton at a concert and he said, uh, you know, I'm teaching at Mills and we, this is exact. You can, des- you can basically design your own program. So if you ever come back to California, let me know. Okay. And so at that point I was ready to come back and I contacted him and applied and got in. So that's, awesome. so the next year awesome. I was at Mills studying, you know, electronic music and composition and playing in the Gamelon. And through that oh, meeting yeah. a ton of people like Miguel Frasconi, who is, who spent years in Toronto, um, back, oh, yeah. in, you know, uh, back in the day and, uh, was in the glass orchestra. Oh did, yeah, great. Okay. You know, and I studied with Lou cool. Harrison and met Pauline Oliveros. I mean, that so being oh, at Mills wow. was like a another lightning oh, rod because so many people are That's great were involved in it and are were there at the time. Wow, man, isn't it beautiful how it all comes together? Like, if you didn't go to London, maybe none of that happens. I don't know. Right. Man. Well, I you know, it was, I kind of think, what if I hadn't gone? What if I hadn't come back here and gone to to Berlin? Right. And I think because you know at that time Berlin would that would have been a good choice because. I could sure. have gotten to that. Okay. Scene. I could have gotten to that scene early, right? And yeah, with yeah, my combined yeah. skills, but I liked, you know, I liked man California weather. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, Fair and enough. I don't know. It 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 just made more sense to be yeah. out here yeah. for what I wanted to do, and I'm kind of, I don't regret it in that the the difference oh, no, between no. the the San Francisco area and other scenes is that we have the Pacific Rim influence, yeah. and um, there's no. There's no pressure to be a um, there's no pressure to be a careerist. In other words, to oh. be in New York, you've got to have your shtick and you you stick to your yeah. thing. In the Bay Area, yeah. there's no chance of being a career like that. So you, you end up working with all kinds of people and you just you kind of yeah. do your own yeah. thing. Okay. Which is why, you know, Parch was there for a while, Lou Harrison, Cage spent time okay. there. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of crossover in the kinds of music, and that really appealed to me to stay there. And I just got into the scene and you know, so it was just by hap- awesome. everything's by happenstance. You know, you can look back and say, you know, I guess so. God, I, I guess if I had so. planned it, yeah. but I, you know, I'm glad I didn't it's plan kind of, it. Well, it's kind of it's kind of fun to hear you go like, yeah, yeah. I had thoughts of going to Berlin just because that might have made sense, but it's like it sounds like you were at the epicenter of it. Like even talking to Matt Brubeck, it's like San Francisco area <clears> at that time, Clubfoot and so much other like happening around and like just sounds like it was like really like there's musical families that exist to this day that are formed at that time right when yeah and I think you know it's it's in a way it's a small it's a huge scene but it's a it's a it's a familial scene there's not a lot of yeah I mean again there's how many gigs are there there's not that many so there's not a lot of infighting but you had um, Ralph Carney here and right right he um, he and Ralph had a group yeah um, Orange Symphonette which was yes, getting a lot exactly. of a really exactly. huge amount of work. And, yeah, yeah. but you know, at the same time, if you wanted to work in film and television, you had to be in LA or Burbank. And if you wanted to, right. you know, make it in jazz, you had to be in New York, maybe Chicago. Oh, so, so they wouldn't touch San Francisco. It's like, it's too far. Eh? I mean, I we're out, so, yeah. Right? I mean, we, we yeah. didn't, yeah, it's kind of yeah. that yeah. way. I yeah. mean, it's difficult to get, there's not a lot of um, Bay area people that were, were playing in Europe for many years because oh. the European 
people, you know, they, they, the, they, God, way over there on the other side of the world, you know? <laughs> so it was a lot of hard work for people like Ben Goldberg to get over there or, okay. or Rova. Now right. with less funding for the arts over there, it's even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're out here in the provinces, but having said that, a lot of, because of that, there's a lot of innovation and there's a lot of innovation in, like I'm helping uh, edit a book on this group called The Hub, which were the pioneers of cool. computer network music back in the early and mid eighties. Wow. Wow. And you, you know, that a part of that reason that they, that happened is that these guys are in the Bay area around mills, but also involved in Silicon Valley tech. Oh, amazing. You know, NASA so it's Ames. A, it's a wow, yeah. Wow. So, wow. you know, it's a place, it's a kind of thing that couldn't happen in yeah. many other places. That's um, amazing. But that's amazing. What that's interesting about that group is that it's six people with computers, interconnected sharing data but they're they're improvising they're all musicians improvising so it's not like they just sort of type in a thing and hit the space bar and sit back it's like they're really in there like messing with each other and trying to you know break the system their pieces are are designed to like challenge and push the technology and you realize that's no different than you know uh, sunra's band sunra's band you know he's got these guys he rehearses them every day and then he gets to the concert he's throwing them you know curveballs yeah. all the time and yeah. so you yeah. realize that that's you know you can I mean, have technology all, and still have yeah, that yeah. that vibe yeah. of, of yeah, challenging group yeah, yeah, yeah. interaction so the nice, nice the thing that attracts me the most and it's always attracts me, is, is how you how you manage these sort of ensemble uh ensemble playing experiences at different levels of shared information. So whether you show up and do a free gig like I did in Toronto uh-huh. uh, with I Norton and, and just throw a bunch of rules at you and see what happens, yeah. or do I show up and we just play and not have any rules? You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I I'm fascinated by that. I pay a lot of attention to all that. So I mean, at the moment I'm getting, I'm working on a PhD that is involved basically in that whole idea of what happens when you, rather than using a computer to mediate, improvisation what if you just overload people's brains you know with information and really push you know the kinds of uh behaviors and ex- ex- uh, expectations of of artists in general because this the program i'm in is not a music program it's a multi-disciplinary oh, wow. so i'm working with people who make paper working with people who print using letterpress print rather than just dancers oh, and actors who i work with but trying to find you know ways that yeah. we can generate a score in physical in you know in physical reality from wow. the ground up wow it's influenced by wow. all the performance so this is kind of you know where it's come to from the ground up that yeah. sounds very much like the <laughs> you know the, the long now foundation or something like right. that that li- literally looks at it and says okay before we can have paper we must have tree we must really think of it over a 400 year span yeah that's kind of what you're thinking oh totally I, you know oh wow well you know in here and uh, we 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 really think about you know, we're on indigenous land. What does that mean yep. to our practice? What does that mean to, yep. you know, yep. the yep. stewardship of the land? Love it. And then yeah, I'm it. thinking, well, we have this material we could use as part of the score paper as, part, you know, yep. it forces yep. us to work with yep. it in a certain way. It's yep. not like um, if you use rag or if you use uh, mulberry, <clears throat> we can use any kind of plant material here. You just have to treat wow. it in a certain way and then, and then what do you do about printing? What kind of inks? Well, we can make right. ink from right. natural materials, local materials. 
And then what if you take that aesthetic and you you could do it anywhere? You can do it, it. in Toronto, Got you it. can do it, you know, in yep. Tokyo. Yep. Wow. So you know, this is rich. Uh what who are you doing that PhD through? Uh University of California at Davis. Okay. Which uh, is Probably few people that hear this will know about it, but remarkably, the magazine called Source Magazine from the 60s, which was a uh-huh. major uh-huh. publication that published like the works of Cage and Stockhausen and all the, all you know, the Once Festival and stuff, that was published yeah. in Davis. And Davis every year would have a, a guest artist. They had Stockhausen, they had, uh, yeah. they had yeah. Cage, of course. So, you know, and then Bob Ostertag has been there for many years as well. So it's it's right. sort of like this hidden gem out near Sacramento in the desert, or okay. the sort of you know <laughs> desert out there where it's hot. Um, it's not really desert. You, you um you strike <clears throat> me as the person who never stops learning, who is in love with this thing right to the end. You're, you've you've already mentioned two master's degrees, a PhD. <clears throat> what else? What else are you holding from us? Uh, the not to mention the whole beauty sidebar. I mean, you've you've had multiple lives in in on your journey, haven't you? Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, I um, I don't watch TV. I don't have a TV. Um, okay. So if I if I Indus- want industry see, tactics. Yeah, yeah. So if I want to see the news, I just you know look online. But I don't. Yeah. So I you know I okay. spend a lot of time reading and uh, basically experimenting wow. in this room with sound. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm really, I really enjoy working with people uh, who are not musicians and finding, ah. finding the commonalities between our disciplines. Like so, letterpress or dance or what? Yeah. Or even, you know, people yeah. in cosmetics or people who, you know, oh, fuck. you know, my partner is a, uh, a plant scientist. Okay. Amazing. And yeah. you yeah. realize pretty quickly that people who are doing, who are doing biology and plant biology and horticulture, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. share a lot of we share a lot of interesting things. So, and that informs you love know it. that, love that brings up questions that I want to answer. So, yeah, I, I have um, wow, wow, I have a little uh, I have a lot of energy. <laughs> I love it, <laughs> and then I, I, no, I, I and then I sleep I in between. It. I love the curiosity. It's all there, you know. Um, could I, I've kept you for so long. I really appreciate all the insight. We've barely gotten into all of the incredible music you've made, but you mentioned I Norton. I would love to, um, to play a piece from, from I Norton. Uh, and, and where can people learn more about your music if they want to dive into your universes, your multiple universes here on music making? Well, GinoRobert.com. I have my own nice cut. and easy. Uh, and then there's a band camp, Rastascan. Dot, uh, Rasta Scan Records uh, uh, on Bandcamp has some. Uh, Is it S C A N for yeah. Nancy? Okay. Yeah. And it comes from uh, when I was at Redlands, we, we had a reggae band, Rasta Scan, because the technology that drew lines on an old television was called a raster scan. And for oh. some reason, all of us were that electronic music program thought that was really funny. <laughs> Anyways, um, it wasn't, but it it stuck. And so, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And everybody's like, I "Well, yeah." So I get a lot of reggae, you know, demos from people who think oh, wow. it's a reggae label, but I've never wow. really put out reggae. Well, I love reggae and I love dub yeah. and I love the tape thing, but it's not that's fun. You know, I don't. That's fun on that kind of label. So, um, but yeah, that's so between Bandcamp and my and my um, website, best place to do it. Wonderful, wonderful. What 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 do you want to cue up here from I Norton? Let's play something. Uh, what we listen to, we will listen to um, something called uh, Proclamation. Proclamation.
proclamation. And uh, just before we end, we'll we'll end it with proclamation. But what uh, what's some advice you've given? You've shared so much here. But what's some advice you would? I know it sounds like you do a lot of teaching. I mean, we haven't even gotten into all your work in electronic music. Uh, it's part of what you do for sure. But what's some overall career advice you might give a young creative thinking of getting into this game? <coughs> That's a good question. I think uh, you need to know how to record yourself and you need to know how the recording technology works, which is to say that you should know about microphones and preamps and, you know, how to get a good sound recording. Because I think at some point, everyone has to be able to record their own music. And that really helps having that skill Um, and having some skill with, you know, base, so one kind of electronic music, uh, digital audio workstation, Pro Tools, okay. something like that. That's one. Okay. Also, okay. Uh, you know, release your own music. People say, well, I want to be on your label. So why do you want to be on my label? You can, you know. Yeah, why? You have, yeah. yeah, I mean, Bandcamp, there's no distribution anymore. I mean, even the big labels are suffering. Um, yeah. yeah. The big labels in our in our world, not, you know. Right. But, you know, yeah. in the in the in the commercial world as well. So it's like, mm-hmm. why not just start your own label? Because mm-hmm. eventually, you know, you you will you'll own the rights. So I, my other thing is that, you know, don't give up your rights to, to things. Nice. We had to nice. for this to get the contract with CBS. We had to give up our half of our publishing. Okay. But I negotiated okay. that we were going to keep our composition. I didn't want to split that up. So that was that was a no giveaway. Wow. So yeah, the good news is all the composers for that TV show still get checks from BMI um, nice. when it's shown in Europe or, or, you know, Asia or South yeah, America. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's, you got to keep that stuff. So don't give that away. And it's really easy to give away publishing because you think, well, you know, it's not that much, but the minute you get a song in a commercial or synchronize it in a film or a TV show, which happens a lot because there's so much media, mm-hmm. then you realize, wow, you know, there is that's yeah. where you can make money and if you have given those rights away you know yeah. it makes yeah. it harder so yeah um on the other hand the last bit of advice i would say is what an attorney once told me which is get the money now so somebody will say right. you know what we'll we'll do this right. thing for free and then down the road you take no <laughs> yeah okay i'll just take okay. five hundred dollars now yeah yeah <laughs> that's the same principle as like what your father was saying. It was like, you can't cash in on that distri- distribution 10 years later. Like just oh, get I mean, it now, get it now. Yeah. I, I like mean, uh, unless you can see that this is going to be really, really big, but there are some yeah. times yeah. when it just makes more sense to just get a buyout. Just give me the money yeah. now yeah. because yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to feed somebody. I had kids, you know, got to feed that's the kids. I can't, just, I can't be doing stuff for, you know, 10 years down the road. Yeah. Cause they're going to, they're yeah. going to find ways not to pay you anyway. So you might as well just get the money now. So that's that's yeah. probably the biggest, the biggest. Good tips. Good tips. Yep. And um, um, eat, eat well. Get lots of sleep. Don't do don't do drugs. I mean, cannabis is okay, but just stay away from narcotics. Drink See to this? moderation. Don't drink and drive. Things like that. See this. This is. Oh man, I, I really, really do sincerely appreciate all that you've shared. It's a real, it's a real pleasure to connect with Richard, you. Richard, thank again. you very much for having me on. It's been a, it's been a joy talking. To you. I'm staring at your guitars in the back, thinking. 
I wonder what kind of guitars those are. One's paint. Oh yeah. No. That's... Yeah. One. One is um. A da- I. 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 Um. That painted one is the painting of Mendelssohn Joe. He's a. Oh. He's an outsider artist here in Canada. Who um a couple of years ago he, Joe Joe gave me his guitar, which I'm really honored to. Uh, oh, so that was his so, personal guitar that he painted. Oh man, he toured. He was in the band Mainline Mendelssohn McKenna, who who were quite a, a big blues act at the time in the '70s. And uh, he toured all over with that guitar, so I'm honored to have it. And uh, yeah, man, I'm glad you asked. No, yeah, <laughs> you're geeking well, out, but your room. Yeah, hey, man, it's all about stories, right? And um, thank you for yours, and thank you for all that you do. Uh, let we're gonna end this wonderful chat with with Gino. Go to GinoRobert.com, and here it is now from his uh, from his opera I Norton. This is Proclamation. Large Joshua and Francisco. represented the expression constantly. And expense abolished desire musical. Legislature, the attending fortnight. absent mourning did I. Undo constantly of the fraud as now. Should you be willing, please me arranging. Universal abused expression. Having been absent, a February remedy, next appear order hereby. Presented throughout. Hereby, Commander in Chief, receipt force. A body the most effective. throughout represented. Hope 
yesterday. There you heard it. That was proclamation from his opera, I Norton. And what a fantastic conversation. Thank you again, Mr. Gino Robert, for being on the podcast. And if you want to learn more about Gino's work, go to ginorobert.com or ginorobert.bandcamp.com. And uh, if you want to learn more about our podcasts, please subscribe and go to friendlyrich.com to learn more about the Industry Tactics podcast. Please share it with all your friends. Really loving all these listeners, new listeners that we're getting. Uh, for some reason in Russia, I don't ask questions. We go with it. Thank you for your listenership. And um, hope that Sputnik 5 is pumping through your veins and keeping you all safe out there in Russia. So um, what else? What else? I think that's it. That, did we cover all our bases? No. Well, at the end of the podcast, we talked about Mendelssohn Joe. So I thought it could be fun to pair this podcast with episode nine, my chat with the wonderful Mendelssohn Joe. So if you're new to the podcast and want to go back in the vault, I would suggest that one. And we also talked about the incredible tune Getty Lee from Dave Clark and his Woodshed Orchestra. And Dave, I think, is episode number two of this podcast that we now have 124 episodes cataloged. Really loving that last episode with Kurt Swinghammer as well. That's getting a lot of love. So thanks, everybody, for your support. And we'll see you again next week on Industry Tactics.